Abraham Lincoln named his second son Edward Baker Lincoln. Who was Edward Baker and what happened at Ball's Bluff to Edward Baker? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey Internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Jim Morgan, author of A Little Short of Boats, The Fights at Ball's Bluff and Edwards Ferry. And we've been carrying the story, the narrative of what happened at Ball's Bluff up through the middle of the day when Union General, uh, or Colonel rather, uh, Edward Baker is, is headed across the river to take command of the Union forces in what he is about to find out is an actual uh, skirmish going on. Jim, it would be just the right marketing move if we can get the story about halfway through the day and end the show before we get to the exciting conclusion so everyone will have to buy your book. <laughs> but let's see if we can rush it through and, and, and be fair to our listeners and okay. tell them everything, uh, or not everything, tell them a, a hint of, of a little of everything that gets us to the end of the day. Uh, but you have Baker going across the river now to take command and uh, more Union troops are, are going over, things start to get uh, a, a good bit hotter at this point, I believe. They do around mid-afternoon. Uh, essentially, you have three skirmishes that take place in the morning before Baker ever shows up. The first one I described as one about 11.30, a little bigger than the first one, and then one about 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, that's yet a little bigger. Uh, Baker doesn't actually go over right away. He doesn't cross the river until around 2 or 2.15 in the afternoon. He spends a lot of time on his side of the river trying to find more boats and has been criticized for that. It's a job he should have given to his quartermaster or a competent you know, lieutenant to, to find him boats. He does get across. When he gets across, 
around 215, he meets Colonel Devins, who finally has gotten tired of having his 15th Massachusetts guys out there by themselves doing all the fighting, and he's pulled back to the bluff. Baker positions them all there, or basically just approves of, of what the position, which position they were in. And then around 3 o'clock, the real fighting starts. There's a, uh, an advance by a couple of companies of the 1st California, ordered by Baker, to go forward toward basically from today's cemetery toward today's parking lot for those who are familiar with the battlefield and they tangle these two companies with a portion of the eighth virginia up around the parking lot uh... both of these forces um, this is one of those nasty little hand-to-hand -hand kind of things they both eventually fall back part of the eighth virginia actually breaks and runs and some of those men end up in in leesburg maybe two or three of their companies uh... dissolve though Colonel Eppa Hunton eventually gets them back. The 1st California falls back, and from that time on, approximately then, this would be 3.30-ish in the afternoon, the fighting is very, very uh, intense. Uh, not all of the men at the same time, because it's uh, uh, companies here and there, battalions here and there. The only other large advance by a whole uh, regiment is the 18th Mississippi that shows up, advances across the field, is hit by a murderous crossfire. Their commanding officer, Colonel Erasmus Burt, goes down mortally wounded. And then from then, from that point on, they pull back and sort of split up, and you have this almost constant fighting until dark by, uh, in a manner that one Union officer called, a battle made up of charges. A couple of companies go out and fight, and they fall back. A couple of other companies somewhere else go out and fight. Union and Confederate forces advance, retreat, advance, retreat in the area between the parking lot and the cemetery today. And that area is, is heavily wooded today. Was it equally so at the time of the battle? No, it, was, it was pretty open. It was a woods clearing. It was not agricultural land, uh, but it was just a large woods clearing, roughly 10 acres. Uh, there were some trees and, and underbrush, but basically clear. Today it is mostly overgrown, uh, though the guide group, those of us in the, the uh, battlefield guide group, have done some volunteer work days and cleaned out some of it. Uh, but so the Union is on one side of this clearing, and on the, on the, looks like the north and east sides, and the Confederates are more on the west and south sides of the clearing. That's right. The, the Federals have uh, essentially the bluff at their backs, not immediately at their backs. They are inland a little bit, right about where the cemetery is. And the Confederates are in a, uh, eventually in a kind of horseshoe arrangement around them, largely because that's the way the terrain lies. They almost uh, had no choice but to take that kind of a formation. You mentioned the, the 1st California Regiment. Were they really from California? They were not. Um, the, uh, the idea behind that was that early in the war, Colonel Baker, Edward Baker, who had been associated with California for much of his public life, though he was a senator from Oregon, actually, wanted to have the state of California represented in the Union Army in a formal sort of way, um, largely for public relations purposes. Uh, so in New York and later in Philadelphia, he and some other people organized what they thought would be a regiment. They were going to call it the California Regiment by putting out a call for men who had some California connection. Uh, that's probably kind of dubious. Uh, you had some people claim to live in California. They did get a lot of response, and they ended up with four full regiments, uh, dubbed the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and interestingly, 5th California, though most of these guys, in fact, were Pennsylvanians. And Baker himself, uh, as many people know, was originally uh, came to prominence in Illinois, where he was a, 
uh, a colleague of Abraham Lincoln's. That's right. He was born in England. Uh, parents brought him over here. He grew up in Philadelphia, moved to Illinois as a young man in the 18, I think, 30s, early 40s. He, he um, knew Abraham Lincoln in Springfield. The two of them became very close friends. Uh, they both were members of Congress, uh, Whigs, serving as Whigs in the 1840s, and then around the turn of the decade there, 1849-50, Baker decided to do what a lot of Americans were doing, then he went to California, spent the whole 1850s on the West Coast. Now, Lincoln was offered the governorship of the Oregon Territory in 1850, and he could have gone out there too, but uh, Mary wanted no part of that. And um, I didn't know that. That's news to me. Lincoln was offered the governorship of Oregon. He wanted, well, he wanted the, the general... Land. Uh, he wanted to be the general land commissioner. That was a, a prize patronage plum from Taylor, who was a Whig, uh, the Whig president. And instead, he that was given to Butterfield, and which upset Lincoln considerably. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln, who'd done so much for Taylor's uh, election, was given a consolation offer of, of, of Oregon territory. But he he had no interest, or I think more likely Mary had no interest in taking the family that far away. Well, Baker wanted to be a senator from California. Uh, and he, as I say, spent most of the time there, but uh, it never quite worked. He never could put together the political coalition to get the legislature to name him. And it's a, an interesting story that uh, when Oregon became a state, the nascent Republican Party in Oregon got in touch with him and said, come up here and help us get organized, and if it works and we get control of the legislature, we'll name you the senator. And I, I sometimes joke and figure that maybe that's where Hillary got the idea to move to a state where she knew she could be the senator, because Baker did it first. He so moved to Oregon the, specifically so he could become the senator from there. And Robert Kennedy, you might add, uh, did the same in New York. Uh, ah, yes. Okay. 60s. It's an old American tradition, we'll yeah. say. Uh, well, let's let's skip ahead. And it, if you're like most battlefield guides, I know it, it tears at one's heart to leave out important details, but let's get to the the route at the end of the battle. Okay, uh, the, the fighting had been a kind of slugfest back and forth all day. Um, at Baker is killed, and this is really kind of what leads up to the, the culmination. When Baker goes down, there's some confusion because he had not appointed a second in command, and the other three uh, federal regimental commanders who were colonels, uh, Colonel Charles Devens of the 15th, Colonel William R. Lee of the 20th, and Colonel Milton Cogswell of the 42nd New York, had to get together and decide who was senior. That eventually became Cogswell. He took command and wanted to organize a breakout rather than retreat down the bluff, because he figured trying to do that with all the wounded would turn into a rout. So he tried to organize the men in such a way as to punch out, basically out through today's parking lot and into where the subdivision is so he could move to his left and get down to Edwards Ferry across the river where there would be other federal troops. It didn't work. It fell apart very quickly. It was very confused from the beginning. And at that point, with the the collapse of this attempt, the 17th Mississippi shows up, um, uh, the whole regiment, only that one company that, that sort of opened the ball at the beginning was there. The rest of them show up, fresh troops, full cartridge boxes. They sweep across the field, and that's where the route is. Uh, so, largely, so the Union troops, largely the 17th Mississippi that does it. The Federals are just pouring down the bluff, um, at least the south end of the bluff, uh, down into the river, trying to swim the river, uh, and the route, as has been described, is, is on. Now, the, the river flows from the north to the south at this point, and the that's bluff right. runs north to the south. And so the breakout attempt is to go essentially south down to Edwards Ferry. Um, well, yeah, they want to break out west first. 
I out see. into the uh, into the well where the subdivision is, then turn. Uh, then left or south, atmosphere. yeah, and that would get them down there. Mm-hmm. But instead, that doesn't work. So now they're headed back due east, which also means straight down the bluff. Yeah, and it's that's not... an awfully steep bluff. Well, it is. Uh, one gets the impression from reading some of the accounts that you have all these Union troops kind of doing swan dives off a hundred foot cliff, and that's that's not really the case either. All of the Federals at this point were at the southern end of Ball's Bluff, and Ball's Bluff is kind of a bell curve. It rises from two ravines to a high point in the middle. But they were down toward the southern end, so it was steep, but it was it was not sheer, and it wasn't 100 feet high at that point. You're looking at I don't know 30 or 40 feet, but it's extremely steep, so and it's wooded. So all these men, as the route's going on, are running down a steep hill, in panic, throwing their weapons away, being shot at, and you have all the tripping and stumbling and falling and breaking legs and and all of that that uh, that accompanies that. In, in your guide, in your book, which serves. Uh with its very clear maps as a wonderful guidebook as well as a story to read at home. You mentioned if you're going to visit the battlefield today, keep a close uh, hand on children or pets as you go along the bluff. It, it really is, uh, there, there's an element of danger there. Oh, yes. The, the bluff does rise um, to its high point in the middle, and there it is sheer. It's a straight 100-foot drop. And so part of the path, what works its way along there, and for some time uh, you are right there, uh, along the edge, and so we, we give that warning. But but um, because it is a kind of bell curve, as you're walking, you're essentially going downhill, and the bluff begins to smooth out and become less sheer. But still, it, it's it's plenty sheer for the Union troops who are, are, are racing down it. And when they get to the bottom, uh, they're going to be a little short of boats. Well, that's right. Uh, when they get to the bottom, there's a river. Uh, they have... One kind of a flat boat that had been brought across, it eventually sank. It got swamped with so many men trying to to um, to get on it. They basically flipped it and sank it. And then two or three other small skiffs that um, got shot full of holes and just drifted away. So they they really were left with the choice of either taking to the river to try to swim, in which case they might get shot because there are Confederates at this point lining the top of the bluff, just shooting them. Um, I mean, it's your classic fish-in-a-barrel kind of scenario. Um, or they could hunker down up against the base of the bluff and stay out of the line of fire and try to wait for dark. Some of them did that. A large number simply had had enough and surrendered. Now, we wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about the aftermath and the career of of General Stone. Uh, He gets in a lot of trouble for this. He does, um, really less for losing the Battle of Ball's Bluff than for a lot of uh, political uh, abolition-related politics of of the time. He does get criticized uh, because even though McClellan exonerates him a couple of days after the battle, McClellan says very clearly and publicly that the fault uh, was not Stone's, that it was Baker's. Baker, of course, is now dead, though. So he is a United States senator, best friend of the president, and he's died gloriously on the field of battle, so you really can't blame him. And that leaves Stone, who's the next up in the chain of command. So some of the blame does go to Stone, even though McClellan has exonerated him. Things kind of bubble for a while because there are a lot of Baker's friends who are complaining about what happened. Um, and then you have a problem with some slaves who had a couple of from Virginia who had come across, been brought across by the Federals. Turned out they didn't want to come across because their families were there. They actually asked to be returned to Virginia, and Stone returned them at their own request. About the same time, there were a couple of slaves from Maryland who had to be brought back to their owners because the federal government required that 
Maryland slave owners were entitled to get their slaves back. The federal government trying to keep slave-owning Maryland loyal and in the Union, so they were going along with this. So they got to blame for returning slaves to their masters, and a lot of the abolitionists, Sumner and others in Congress, really savaged him for that. And and this does indeed end up being the the end of his career. Uh, but yeah, he he does serve somewhat later. He spends six months in jail, no charges ever filed. He does serve for a few months with General Banks uh, in Louisiana, but his his career is pretty much ruined. Yeah. Well. The music tells us we've come to the end, uh, always too soon, on Civil War Talk Radio. But I will tell all our listeners once again, if you want to read a really exemplary account of a small battle that tells the story clearly and gives marvelous maps to help you see it in your mind's eye, if you're not fortunate enough to go walk the field yourself, get yourself a copy of A Little Short of Boats, The Fights at Ball's Bluff and Edwards Ferry by James A. Morgan III. Jim, it's been great talking to you. I enjoyed your book, and I enjoyed our conversation. Jerry, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.